diving in this morning, there is a subject in school that I wish had been more interesting to me when I was taking it. And sadly, it was one of those that I probably, I'm not bashing anybody, I liked some of my teachers, but in terms of the class, they probably weren't the best teachers for like getting me real excited about the subject of history, right? And as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate history that much more, to learn interesting things about where we came from, especially as I got into college and studying church history and starting to realize where the, all the twists and turns of the church throughout the years and kind of where we came from and what, where this came from and why we do this and why we do that and all the weird stuff. It's not always a pretty picture, but there's a lot to be learned from it, right? And as you look at all those things, there are certain names that come up and there are certain images and pictures and ideas and uh, you know, even just today, as we look at the circumstances of the world and what we know has been a historical couple of years, a season of life where we know people are going to be talking about this season for a while after the fact, you just kind of think about like what things leave a mark, what things are remembered, what aspects of someone do we think about when their picture or name comes up? Because we think. Back through history, great leaders, we start thinking about certain military accomplishments. They won this major battle or conquered this army with their army, and therefore we celebrate and revere them because of those accomplishments. We think of someone's amazing invention that has revolutionized the world and changed our lives. For good or bad, it doesn't necessarily matter, but it's changed things, right? Because they had this idea and followed through with it. And when we see their name or their picture, we think of this amazing advancement in technology. Or maybe it's because someone had just an incredible sense of charisma in public speaking. Their ability to get up in front of other people and make them feel good, make them feel comforted, help them navigate through difficult seasons, or help rally them in hardship, through whether it be through war or just a trial or a challenge. You know, like we sometimes criticize leaders and people over the course of time because of how they handle things. What do they, how do we feel whenever they speak? Do we feel good, do we feel bad, do we feel like they just, I don't know. There's a lot of emotions that come with those things and it starts to shape how we remember people. And as we look at history and this idea that there's something you'll be remembered for, some piece of who you are, whether it be great charisma, great military strategy, great intelligence, just um, whatever, we look at this picture, we start to realize that there are a lot of leaders we lift up and idealize the values of who they are, what they were, what they accomplished. We should be like this leader. If we want to succeed, we should be like this business person who did these things and took these steps to go through college to succeed. If you want to accomplish great things, you need to be a dreamer and a visionary and smart and all this fun stuff that he was to accomplish these kind of things. Because we want to emulate or have success. We want to be like some of these people. We point to different people throughout history for different accomplishments. Or we might point to someone and say, don't be this. Because obviously, this person is known for all the wrong things. And I think about history and how much more of it I wish I knew and understood. How much more I deeply, I really got the full picture of what was going on behind the scenes. Because we know that when you live it, it's different than how it's remembered sometimes, right? as we look at all that, we think about that, and there's all this stuff that comes up, who someone was, what they accomplished, who they were, what happened. And we start to think about all those characteristics of what we would like in a good leader or good someone who's going to be successful. What do we want to see in ourselves when we want to be successful or remembered? 
or what kind of legacy we're going to leave, what kind of mark we're going to leave on this world. And just for fun, I thought I would throw this out here. When we look at the Bible and pictures, I'm going to take Jesus off the table because I know that's the Sunday school answer. All right? But we start talking about different characters in Scripture. Who are great leaders that come to mind in Scripture? Once I take Jesus out of the picture for a second, okay? I know he was a great leader. Let's put him aside for a minute. Who are the other names that just kind of come into your mind? Go ahead. Shout a couple out. Joshua. Joshua. Moses. David. 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 Paul. Daniel. Paul. Daniel. Mark. Abraham. Mark. Abraham, right? Lots of good names in there, right? And it's funny. We start looking at those stories. One of those that was mentioned, somebody mentioned it, brought it up. David. I've been reading a lot about David lately. I'm currently in my studies daily in 1 Samuel. And David is somebody whose life I'm reading through. And right now, Saul is still being king, right? <laughs> um, that really is a very short-lived thing. Like, Samuel anoints him, Saul becomes king, and then like a chapter later, Saul has messed it up. It was really shortly, uh, short, I mean, he was still king for a long time, but he like had failed pretty quickly in at least in context of scripture, it may have been a while. But when we read that story, it's like, oh, that was quick. But now we have this guy, he's anointed named David. And David's stepping into this picture. And the first thing we really see of David is that he gets anointed and hits his brothers who look like they're going to fit the part, right? They look like they've got all the criteria that's going to be the great leadership qualities. And then all of a sudden, God's like, not any of these brothers. There's got to be another one. Jesse says, yeah, 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 my youngest is out tending sheep. He comes back in. He's kind of smaller. He's a good-looking guy. But, you know, he's kind of the young one. And God says, that's the one. He anoints him as someone who's going to be the king. The next thing we know is Saul needs somebody to calm him down because he's got kind of a bad attitude and things keep getting rough. So he needs somebody to play the harp to kind of help mellow him out. David gets picked because he's a really good musician. Good-looking guy, really good musician. You know, here we go. Application is being filled out here. He's playing for Saul and it helps calm him down and they build a good rapport. Then the next thing we know, David goes to visit his brothers in the battlefield. It's interesting because I always think of like, this is Saul's first encounter with David. But no, David's been playing hard for him already. And all of a sudden he shows up and says, why are you guys letting the Philistine push you around? Why hasn't somebody dealt with him yet? I'll do it. And they're like, yeah, 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 little guy. Sure you will. He goes, I fight bears and lions all the time. Why is this guy any different? And he goes out with a slingshot and knocks the guy down. And now all of a sudden, David is like celebrating. Wow, I'm going to give you a great position. They start to really pick up. Saul brings him in and says, man, you're a guy who's going someplace, right? I'm seeing qualities in you that are great. You're not afraid. You're, you've been loyal. You've been playing music for me. You're, you're a sharp guy. Like, I'm going to keep you around. The problem is, is they go out in these battles that are continually fighting with these Philistines. And all of a sudden, David's resume gets better. Saul doesn't know he's been anointed king privately. Like God and Samuel managed to keep that secret, right? But what's happening is David's popularity is growing. Saul kills thousands, but David kills by ten thousands. Like his victories are so much bigger than Saul's, and his reputation and the ways that the ladies would come out into the streets and sing about David is like, ooh, he's great. And you look at that resume; it's like, yeah, it's great. And everybody's going, this guy is fantastic. And we know that David is mentioned in Scripture as a man who's after God's own heart. Not someone who had God's heart. Not someone who was perfect and without failing. But someone who was pursuing and chasing after God's heart. Trying to be like him. And yet we look at the accomplishments and what's going on. In the midst of that story, all the reasons he's 
receiving praise from the people are because of the battles he's won. Because of some of the strength of what he's accomplished. Because of the great stories that are being told about his name. But is that really what made David great? Is that really what made God want to anoint David? And it leads me to this question. When we wrestle with all the stuff people are remembered for, what we know, what we see, what we respect, what we appreciate, is that really the most valuable piece? Or is God looking for qualities from us and from his people and from leaders that are more significant, more important? Not that those things were bad. God was still in the midst of those things. God was definitely with him when he faced the giant. It wasn't wrong. But was that the most important piece of the puzzle? So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning. To continue with our Core 52 study, and if you uh, haven't got the book, there's a little background on more. There's, there's one I noticed back on the table. I'll get some more if we need it. Um, but we're walking through this and kind of going through these verses. And this week, our core verse is found in Mark chapter 10. And the story starts kind of like this. If you look just a little before where we're going to pick up the story, Jesus and his disciples are going into Jerusalem. Okay? This is preparation for where we're about to head into next week. For us, you know, this calendar season of Holy Week, Jesus going into Jerusalem where the palms are going to be waved and Jesus is going to be welcomed in riding on a donkey with palm races waved. It's kind of signifying his coronation as king. This whole imagery is pretty crazy. But they're on the road right now and Jesus has just finished telling his disciples once again, listen, I'm going to be handed over. This isn't going to be a pretty picture. But he's just once again said, like, here's how this is going to play out. And obviously his disciples understood because here's what happens next. We'll pick up the story right here in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is an interesting thing. You ever had that person say, will you do me a favor? Will you promise me to do something before I ask it? Can we just get you to agree before we throw it out there? Like, please just agree. Whatever we ask, you'll just do it for us. Would that be nice, right? It's an interesting tone for the disciples to take in this moment. But these two brothers are kind of trying to squeeze in here. They've already been in Jesus' kind of inner circle, right? James, John, and number three was Peter, right? Peter, James, and John were the three who were kind of closest. They're up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They've already kind of been invited to that inner circle. You'll notice Peter's not here. The brothers are pulling this move where they're going over to see Jesus. Can you, can you get us what we ask, whatever it is? And it's interesting how this plays out. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus says. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, this is interesting because... Right here, we're going to dig into the text a little bit and realize sometimes we see the word glory and we think, hey, they just heard that he's going to go be handed over to die, right? And so they obviously realize that in the midst of his glory in heaven and in the big picture of your heavenly kingdom, we just want to be faithful followers who sit at your right and your left because he's used this kind of imagery before. We see it in Matthew chapter 19. If you look over there, not right now. But you'll see kind of these other stories where he's talked about them sitting on thrones and kind of presented some of this imagery. So they've heard him talk like this kind of before, but their minds are not fixed on eternal glory. Their minds right now are fixed on, we know you're going into Jerusalem. We believe something's about to happen. But what we're assuming is that you're going to take your rightful position as Messiah, taking your seat on a real throne, returning to this glory of David, 
picking up where he left off and being king, the one who follows from his line, who's going to sit on the throne and be the one who overthrows Rome and does all these great things. And the position of right side and left side is kind of either for one or two people, like sons and heirs, or very high-ranking advisors. And so what these two are saying is, hey, when you enter your kingdom, when you establish your rule as the Messiah, can we sit next to you and be your like, right-hand guys, your big-time advisors? They're making a play right here, right? Ambitious. Yeah, that's good. Network, connect. We tell our kids that all the time. Make friends, make connections, get to know people. Put yourself in the right spot. Put yourself in the right position to climb the ladder, right? That's what they're doing. In fact, if other... Other accounts of this story, their mom is even somewhat involved in this process, which is interesting. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? It's interesting because the imagery Jesus uses here is the cup. We see Jesus later use this imagery when he's talking about, can this cup be taken away from me? This is kind of lost on us because we don't talk about it this way, but this cup is kind of this picture of suffering and sacrifice. Baptism being laid to death and resurrected, right? Baptism is completely immersed because we're kind of dying to ourselves and being raised in a new life in Christ. So the imagery he's using here is that of suffering and of death. Can you suffer alongside of me? Can you face the trials and the hardships that I'm going to do? You can't do that. And they said to him, we are able... It's going to be hard, we know that. It's going to be a long fight. We're ready for the fight. We're ready to go. We're ready to be a part of your kingdom. We can hang with you in this. Because again, they're on different wavelengths. They're talking about different things here. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Because later you are going to sacrifice. You are going to give over your life for this cause. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Okay, so this is interesting. He says, you can't have those spots that are not mine to give. That's God's position, God's authority. That's, that's not something I can just hand over to you. But I don't think you understand what you're asking. So Jesus is kind of dealing with this situation. But then the others realize what's going on. They're there. And they are not indignant and upset because how dare you guys ask a question like that? That's rude. You're missing the point. Have you not understood what Jesus has been teaching? No, they're indignant because they didn't get there first. Right? They're upset because these guys are trying to make a position position play around them to the front of the line. They're kind of like, no, no, we've been here just as long as you have. Why can't we find the ladder too? There's tension that all, all of a sudden starts to arise. And so Jesus called them to him. And starts to teach. Because this is this moment where his disciples, who in these last weeks leading into his crucifixion, still do not realize what's happening. What this kingdom is really about. He starts to teach. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. You've seen how leadership works in this world. You see people climb those ladders and take authority and position, and now they view themselves as higher. They view themselves as better. They say, I've got the skills. I've got the wisdom. You should follow me and trust me. I know what's better. You should trust me because I am great in these areas. I've got great accomplishments in these areas. I lord it over you and put you in your place because I have climbed this far 
I am wiser, I am smarter, I am more powerful, I've got more money, I've got this, I've got that. Whatever it is, these other people in this world lead like that. That's how authority works. That's how people gain position. But here's how it works in my kingdom. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then we get our main verse for this week. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, look, all these other people, everybody else, this is how they're doing it. That's not how it works with you. You want to be great? You actually want to be a great leader? You want to be someone who is really doing what is important in my kingdom, in my rule, and in my reign? It's not about climbing the ladder and having a seat on the right and left. It's not looking for ways that you can climb so that other people would serve you. It's you being willing to step down from your position, to humble yourselves, and to serve others. Even I, the master, the king, the one who is going to take this messianic throne that you don't understand yet, am going to serve. And that is the example I'm going to set, the way I'm going to lead, I'm going to serve. You can talk about all the other great accomplishments. You can talk about my wisdom and my teaching. You can talk about all these other things. But how much does any of that mean if Jesus doesn't ultimately go to the cross, <coughs> sacrifice, humble himself, laying himself completely out, laying everything on the table to sacrificially give of himself, humble himself, and be obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be forgiven of our sins, so our sins be carried and no longer a barrier for us. And then resurrection so that death no longer has its hold on us, that we no longer have guilt and shame, that all of those things are conquered and buried away, and we can live a new life in Christ. How much weight does the teaching, does the leadership, does all the stuff bear if he doesn't also live sacrificially? We love Jesus' sacrifice, right? We love it. It's wonderful. It's one of the reasons we go in. Look what he did for us. Look how much he gave for us. Isn't it great that he did all that work for us so that now we can still climb the ladder and go be successful and make a name for ourselves by doing all these great things without worrying about sin? That doesn't seem right, does it? In fact, just to double down on it, because I love this part of the story, to be perfectly honest, verse 46 continues on. You'll get another heading there in your Bible if you're not paying attention. And it may feel like a completely different story because things shift and change. And we got a different heading. And so now we get a different story in the gospel. But remember, those chapter headings weren't there. Those verses weren't there. This was all written as one story. And I love how this continues on. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus... Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. I wonder why that was. Hey, listen, this guy's coming in to take his throne. This is a big deal. He's making the march to Jerusalem. This is going to be exciting. We're all following. We're all looking forward to what's happening. He doesn't have time for some blind beggar on the side of the road. He's an important person. He's got status. He's got position. He's got all this stuff. He's an important guy. Shush. Don't bother the master. 
And Jesus not only is going to teach his disciples what they're supposed to do, he's not just going to say it with his mouth. Servant leadership is important. He's going to live it out. But he cried out to him all the more, Son of David, recognizing again Jesus the Messiah, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, notice, recognize this phrase, What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that funny? thought he just used that phrase a few minutes ago, didn't you? Do you think Mark did that on accident? No, Mark's pretty intentional about the way he writes. And he does these cool sandwich things where there's like kind of a beginning of the story and kind of a middle, and then they kind of just wrap up. And he brings all these things together, and he uses this phrase again, what can I do for you? He just asked James and John the same thing, what can I do for you? And that was their question, or that was their response, and this whole thing played out. But when he asked blind Bartimaeus, the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately you recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Your faith, remember we talked about faith a couple weeks ago, your ability to be trustworthy, steadfast, to not know what is going to be provided, but to come anyway. To not be sure of what the outcome is going to be, but to step out in faith and say, I recognize who you are, I see who you are, I have heard of your goodness, and I trust you. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, I don't know if you'll make me well, but please have mercy on me in some way, is his cry. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And he's healed, and he follows Jesus on the way. Jesus stops in the middle of a busy procession, in the middle of all the crowd, and hears the voice of someone in need. Jesus sees the need, hears the need, is aware of the need, and humbly gives of himself to serve. To show kindness and compassion and love to someone who is just crying out for help. And in so doing, he is saying, what can I do for you? I can give you the ability to see. There's this book I read once upon a time called uh, Spiritual uh, Family. And it's just kind of how to, how to kind of raise your kids up in this idea of how to follow them. There's a chapter on service, giving of yourself, sacrificing to help others. And the big emphasis of this chapter, and what she kind of says is the most important piece about serving, is having eyes to see what needs to be done. The ability to be aware of your surroundings, to see what's happening in the world around you, and to recognize the need without someone having to ask. Just looking and saying, what is there here that we can do? If we open our eyes and just look around, what can we see that needs done that we can help do? And as I read that story, this may not have been what Mark intended at all, but it just hit home. Jesus is teaching on how important it is to serve if you want to be my followers, if you want to be people who lead in this kingdom, if you want to be people who press forward and raise up another group of people to build the church, you want to be my apostles who are really going to launch the church, you want to be people who are on my right and left in this kingdom, what you have to do is stop worrying about your position, start paying attention to the needs around you, and start meeting them. Loving those you come in contact with, seeing what hurts there are that exist, and leaning in and being compassionate and having mercy on those folks. Finding the things you can do that show love and concern and sacrificial giving of yourself for others 
so that you meet their needs and find them where they are and meet them where they are so they know you care about them. Not just about the cause, not just about your status in the cause, not just your position because I've got all my sins sorted out and therefore I am holier than thou and loftier and better. And so therefore you have this long list of stuff you should clean up. And until you get that fixed, you're probably not going to make it. So I'm going to tell you, here's how you should do better. That's how people rule and lord it over someone, right? The Gentiles do that. They feel this high and lofty position, then they lord it over someone else. But Jesus is saying, nope. Look how I treat blind Bartimaeus. And what I'm giving him is sight. And if you would trust me and follow in my way and be one of my servants and lead as I have called you to lead, I will give you sight. Sight to see what needs to be done. Sight to meet the needs of those who are hurting. Sight to care and love and engage. If you want to follow in my way, like it says, that last line here, they followed him on the way. The way means... That's what the early church called themselves, the way. They followed Jesus the way he lived. It wasn't just about receiving some stamp, you're in heaven now. Nope. It was about following in the way, picking up your cross daily. Follow Jesus to become like Jesus. I like how Paul states it in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, if you're reading the ESV, it says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, or as the NIV puts it, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul's saying, I don't necessarily have everything figured out. I am not perfect. I'm not trying to lord my position over you, but I can tell you one thing. I'm following Jesus because I want to be like him. I press on to finish this race because I want to be like him with everything I have. So as I go follow him, please come follow me. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still trying to figure this out. And how does Paul recognize himself when he writes to the Romans the very beginning of the book? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He is set apart. Remember, made holy, set apart, different for this purpose as an apostle. And in that role, he recognizes himself as a servant. And so we say, what does it mean to be a leader in the kingdom? What does it mean to grow in our stature and our status and what we're trying to accomplish and do? We have to become like Jesus. Sometimes we think leadership, we think of all these leaders and the things they've accomplished, the wisdom they have, the military prowess they have. We think of all the stuff they've done and we say, oh, I want to be like that. I want to accomplish those things. Or we sometimes pull out back and say, I, I'm not so sure that um, I'm ever going to be that kind of person. I'm not sure that I'm going to make any kind of impact in this world. So, I mean, good for those people who do, but I'm not that kind of leader. So I'm not, I'm not a leader, so I'm just going to remove myself from that. And uh, so this is good teaching for the person who will be a leader. I'm just not sure it's good for me. Because I'm not sure those are my gifts. And we find excuses for ourselves. But here's the reality. These are qualities that are expected of Christ followers. So if we want to call ourselves a Christ follower or a Christian, we want to use that title then we need to start to behave and act like him, grow in his likeness, grow in the way he lived, grow in the way he did things. And therefore, we have to become like him in how we act, how we serve, how our eyes are open, how we're looking. But honestly, most of us kind of live in that go, go, go mentality of here's what I need to do. Here are the 15 tasks on my to-do list this week. And when a service opportunity like Brian Bartimaeus comes up, someone interrupts. 
yeah, to get this done. It's going to keep you from getting that done. I'm not sure I have the extra cash. I'm not sure I have the time. I don't have the skills, so I don't even know how to fix that problem. But we can come up with a really long list of reasons why we can't. And why we probably are exempt from this one. And my question is, are we still living with our eyes closed, still living like James and John were in that moment, looking for what I can accomplish for myself? It may not be the grandeur of leadership on a big scale, trying to be the most charismatic, trying to be the most prowess in these areas, but it's still just kind of about my little world, what I can contribute to it, and how I can be the Lord or ruler of my space. And Jesus said, no, if you want to follow me, you've got to lay that down. You want to be like me, you got to serve. There are other ways you can be a leader. You can be charismatic. You can be a good speaker. You can do those things. Those skills aren't bad. I'm going to use them. But if you don't start with humility and a willingness to serve, you're probably still not that great of a leader despite your charisma, despite your skills, despite your wisdom, despite your knowledge. If you can't humble yourself and serve, your leadership is kind of different than what Jesus expects for his kingdom. If you're not willing to humble yourself, and I want to say this too. I think this is important for us to hear. Because I see a lot of people who are really good at serving. If you look at this picture in John of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, here's what he kind of says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's kind of appalled. Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus makes a statement. If I do not wash you, you have no share in me. And we think about like communion, we think about the blood, washing away our sins. If I don't make you clean, you have no part of me. And I think we leave it at that. But here's a very important thing. Peter is going, no, 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 I should be serving you. Uh, you can't serve me. You can't wipe my dirty feet. I have to lay my disgusting, gross, awful feet before the Savior unless you touch them, unless you like wash them. That, that just feels wrong and inappropriate. You shouldn't have to worry about me. I should be worrying about you. I think there's two parts to this teaching that Jesus has given. Yes, we need to allow ourselves to be washed and made clean the way he's going to forgive us and wash us clean. But I also think when it comes to service, we don't only have to be able to serve. We have to serve out of a place of humility. And when we are not willing to give up our dirty feet and let other people serve us, we call it like, oh, I don't want to bother you. I don't want to, I don't want to. But honestly, let's be real. That honestly comes from a place of pride. I should be able to take care of myself. I was told I need to take care of myself. I don't want to bother you because I should be able to take care of yourself. And by letting you serve me, I somehow feel like you might think less of me. I'm supposed to help the less fortunate. And so I want to help the less fortunate. Are we not in thinking I can only serve the less fortunate putting ourselves up and looking down? The position of service starts down looking across at someone we can help. It starts with a humility that sees no one, 
not ourselves any higher than anybody else. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but consider other consider others better than yourself, right? It's the teaching that Paul gives. Service has to come out of a place of humility where we are willing to let ourselves be served and are willing to serve. Because here's the reality. If the church goes out and leads as it should, setting an example for people, loving the way Christ loves, saying, follow me as I follow Christ, we are examples, leaders. No matter whether you feel like a leader or not, you are called to be a leader in this kingdom because everybody is called to participate. And if we're going to be a leader who sets an example, and we all create leaders who are willing to serve, but an entire world who is willing to serve, but no one who is willing to let themselves be served, what is the point? There's no one to serve at that point, right? If the world is transformed into this likeness and say, yes, we're ready to serve, but no one is willing to kind of let anybody in their space, how are we actually supposed to be what Acts chapter 2 paints this picture of as the early church who sold what they had and gave to one another? If no one was willing to accept that money, then if no one was willing to accept help or prayers, then what would that look like? That comes out of a place of pride, and this pride and humility can't live in those same spaces. We have to truly let ourselves be humbled and realize that we are not working out of a place of high position. We are not working out of a place of, I have come to know Christ, therefore I am elevated to this spot where I can see from my lofty mountaintop all the people who need my help, and therefore I have to go help them. No, we start in our home with our family, who we love, our around, and we say, how can I help them? How can I make their day better? We look at our neighbors in the neighborhood and say, I'm looking around. What are my eyes open to? What can I see? Who needs help? Who needs a friend? Who just needs a hello? or a smile, or a wave. Then a little further in my community, what are things I can honestly be doing to make an impact? Because I shouldn't be sitting back and waiting for opportunities to just come to me and then decide whether they fit into my calendar for today. We should be walking around like the restored Bartimaeus who can now see and saying, God, how can I follow in your way? I once was blind, but now I see. How do you help me serve? Humble myself and give. So I can truly be like you. Because this part of following was not optional. If you want to be like me, you will give of yourself and be a servant like me. We can make all the excuses we want. But that's what we're called to be. And we are all called to be examples. We're all called to lead. We're all called to share the gospel to share the good news, to be faithful, to work hard for those six days and still find rest in Him so that we can refresh ourselves so our eyes are open and ready. All these things we've been talking about, being faithful and continuing to show up. I'm not sure what's going to come of this, but I trust you. And if you call me to be faithfully serving and living out this faith, then I will. So where is it you want to lead me? Where is it you need to open my eyes? Where is it I need to see this morning? So be with that, heads with me. We're going to transition into a time of prayer. And as always, we're going to have a time of communion and we're going to have a time of singing afterwards. And as as we go through all of this, you are welcome. I'll be up here if you want to pray. Um, just come grab me, tap me on the shoulder. We can pray about anything that's going on in your heart. We need to wrestle with who Jesus is and why, you know, this side or the other is going on in your life. We, we can pray. Come on up here time. But as we come into this specific moment, I just ask you to humble yourselves for just a moment to close your eyes and just give yourself a little quiet space in this moment. To say, God, am I humble enough to let others in and let them serve me?
Am I willing to be humble and vulnerable in a way where I'm not ashamed of what people may see? I rest in confidence of you knowing that you are good and there are people in this world who would love me and care for me no matter what they see. Can I safely let them in and start there? Or Father, is there some other way I need to be serving? Maybe I feel perfectly fine letting other people serve me. I, I feel like that's okay, but I just have not done a great job of stepping out and opening my eyes to look for opportunities to do something. How can, how can you open my eyes to help me see, help me process through that? Whatever it is this morning that God needs to work in your heart, just give him space, ask those questions, and give him some room and time and space and quiet to answer. sacrificial giving. Thank you for your example of humbling yourself and seeing the tax collector, the prostitute, the woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman at the well. Thank you for seeing blind Bartimaeus and so many others who were possessed by evil spirits and those who were lepers that the community had just outcast and thrown aside. Thank you for your example of constantly seeing the hurting people in your world and showing us that our eyes should be open to encounter, to love, to meet the needs of. Thank you, Father, for your example and how to love and care for a hurting world. And not to lord yourself up above everybody else and condemn them because they haven't sorted out their messes. But, Father, for meeting people right where they are and saying, come, follow me, and I will help you become what you need to be. Follow my way. Father, I pray you forgive me for the ways where I just go off on my own way and do my own thing. Where I look at my schedule and my calendar and my busyness and say, I just don't have time for that. Father, I pray that you would help us to live out of heart in a position of sacrificial service and not out of a position of fulfilling the needs of our current kingdom and what we need to get done. Help us to chase after the attributes of who you've called us to be as leaders. Not get caught up in the world's perspective of this charismatic person or this person who just says it how it is or this person who's trying to play politics or this person who everybody thinks is so great but they're still a mess. Father, I pray you help us not to sit back and join in the party of judging everybody else off the characteristics we can see from afar, but help us to humbly fall on our knees and realize that no person has been created higher than the other, that there is neither Jew nor Greek male or female, slave or master, Father, I pray that you would help us to see that you have even the playing field. And then in your eyes, we are all equal and equally loved and important in this kingdom. Help us to love accordingly. Help us to be like you and serve like you. It's in the precious name of Jesus, I pray.